Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the weekly Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast, where we talk about the latest developments from the last week in the world of running. And it's an Olympic year. It's early February, and man, oh man, are things heating up. So much to talk about. This week, we're going to talk about it all. It's a wide variety of things, from everything from the near world record in the pole vault yesterday to indoor 800 madness from Great Britain, half marathon madness from Japan. Who has made the Mount Rushmore at the new Hayward Field and be featured on the 10-story tower? We may even stray from running and talk a little about Super Bowl. We had boots on the ground at the Iowa caucuses. I'm not sure if they even have the results yet. Actually, they do. We may talk about that. And of course, what would a Let's Run.com podcast be if we didn't talk about the vapor flies? This is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson. I'm joined by Jonathan Galt this week. Only Jonathan. Yeah, well, where's Weldon at, Robert? Breaking development. Weldon, folks, is on his baby moon. Now, for those of you that aren't married or, or guys don't know what a baby moon is, it's kind of like a honeymoon to... When your wife's pregnant, you go on a big trip, I guess, to rekindle that love because you'll, for 18 years, you won't have time for each other. You'll be focused on the child. So my days as the favored son in the family are soon to be coming to an end because I was the only one to produce a grandchild for my mother. That will soon be ending, but we'll be back to being co-equals. Well, it sounds like you need to you need to give Clayton a brother or sister and then you become the favored son again, Robert. That, that's a good point. That's a good point. Baby, baby moon is a fascinating concept to me. Wouldn't it be better to go on a baby moon before his wife's actually pregnant? That way they can sort of go, she could be a little bit more active, have some alcohol. Like I feel like now when you, your wife's already pregnant, that sort of limits some of the activities. Yeah. Maybe the baby moon could be a new thing to create the baby. You go out and have a little time. Alcohol certainly can help that. Robert, this is a, this is a million dollar idea right now. Baby Moon, and then yeah, you you get the conception somewhere on there. You have a fun trip to remember it by. You maybe name the baby after a landmark in the city. This is, we need to patent start the podcast and patent this idea right now. Ladies, if you're listening, how is Jonathan Galt still single? These ideas are so brilliant. But um, guys, I, I I did promise Jonathan we would not take vapor flies until the very end of the podcast. So if you don't want to listen to it, if you're tired of the Vaporfly talk, we're putting that at the very end. And if you haven't listened, since our last weekly podcast, we generally record on a Wednesday, we've had two bonus podcasts. Last Friday, we recorded an emergency podcast with Shalea Kip, the, the former uh, 2012 Olympian from Colorado, NCAA champion. She is one of the lead researchers into the Vaporfly. She had some fascinating stuff. If you have not listened to that and you're into the shoe stuff, you have to listen to it. She talked about how they started – when they started testing the shoes, they called them the magic. They were blown away. It's a must listen. And then um, a few days ago, we just released the podcast with Hoka NAZ elite coach Ben Rosario. And that's bringing us to our sponsor, Plug. This month is February. It's a special month. Not only is it leap year, so only once every four years do we have February 29th, but only once every four years do we have the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials. And that is the greatest race in American distance running, in our opinion. And Hoka One One is here to help us promote it. Thanks to our partnership with them, we're going to be featuring the Hoka athletes, the 17 Hoka athletes at the trials, um, from the contenders to the dreamers to the mountain men and women. We've got you covered. Last year, Hoka got us all excited about the ultra scene. This year, they've got us excited about something we're always excited about, the 2020 U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials. So 
check that out. We've got a number of articles and and stuff on that up already on the website. But if you haven't listened to the podcast with Coach Rosario, he's got some interesting stuff. He talks about Galen Rupp's new coach. He talks about Jim Walmsley. And, of course, he talks about his studs that he has coming up for the trials. So, John, where do you want to begin this week, though? I, it's strange that I'm saying this, but I really want to begin with the men's pole vault from Dusseldorf, Germany, because this meet happened yesterday. It was the third stop on the World Athletics World Indoor Tour, and you know there are some decent matchups on the track. Uh, Selmon Borrega actually ran really fast. He, he clocked a 7:35 in the 3K, which is the fastest one over that distance for five years. Really impressive running there, but. The, the highlight of the meet undoubtedly was the men's pole vault. And if you remember back to Doha, we had a great showdown between Mondo Duplantis and Sam Kendricks there, and Kendricks ended up winning it. This this competition was also really good, but it was more about Mondo than a, a sort of back and forth. Some of these bars, I mean, I saw it first, I saw videos on Twitter. He's just sailing over 580, 590, 595 with massive. Gaps. I mean, some of those vaults looked like they could have been world record vaults if the bar had been high enough. And I'm like, I got to find some sketchy stream of this thing to watch it. Like, the only way I think you could legally watch it in the US was with the Eurosport player, and that's not available unless you have a European IP address. So it's actually not legally available in the US. But I sort of was looking and I found a way to watch it somehow. And it was worth it because he did not break the world record, but after he cleared six meters and won the competition, he took three shots at 617, 6.17 meters, which would have been, would have been broken Renault Villeneuve's world record, which is the overall record also set indoors in 2014. And the second attempt, Mondo, I mean, he had it. He, he sort of hit the bar with his leg coming up, but not. it, it didn't look like that was going to take it down. And he got his whole body over it, and then just as he's coming down, he hits it with his arm, and that is what cost him the world record. But it was just thrilling to watch. I mean, this guy, a year ago, he was a freshman in college. He's still only 20 years old. Really, he didn't even win the NCAA outdoor title last year. He got upset, but then he went out to get silver at Worlds. And I just watching that meet, I got excited. I'm like, this guy is going to break the world record sooner or later. It might even be this year. It was super exciting. Robert, did you see any of this competition? Any thoughts on the our young pole vault phenom? I did not see it, but I did call you what middle of the afternoon to see what you were working on. And you're like, oh my God, I'm watching this pole vault. And you were so excited. He wasn't even over six meters, but just how well he was jumping. You said, just FYI, I may be working on a pole vault world record story. So it was really interesting to me. John, nothing gets by you. I praise you every week, but nothing gets by you. You're viewed as a distance expert, but if something big in the field event world is going on, somehow your eyes see it, catch it, very impressed. Um, no, it, it was kind of exciting because, yeah, I mean, as good as he is, he didn't, you know, win NCAA outdoors. And I guess nobody – it just reminds me nobody wins everything. But then I thought about this in the big picture. I'm like, God, this guy is so young. If he's doing this at the beginning of the Olympic year, yes, he's going to get the world record. So it was pretty exciting on that front. Yeah, this was his first competition of the year. you got to remember that as well. So – I think indoor might actually be his best chance to get it because you don't get a crosswind or anything like that and the existing world record's indoors. But yeah, he's, he's really special. He's obviously, he's vaulted 6.05 meters outdoors and that was back when he was 18 in 2018. So that's exciting. Uh, speaking of a record that did go down though, over the weekend, the men's DMR, 
collegiate DMR, distance medley relay, University of Oregon. Wait, 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 John. Let's stick here with this Dusseldorf meet. Okay. Well, I guess we could come back to it later. I, I do want to bring up something. No, no, no. Hit me. If you got a factoid, well, well, let's talk about Dusseldorf a little more. Well, 735 indoors is obviously very good. We're talking about Selman Borrega. Um, this is the guy that, remember, ran 1243 in 2018, ran 1253 last year, um, got the silver at Worlds. So he's firing on all cylinders. But did you notice he was second place in that race? Yeah, it was getting at Wale, the steepler. And not, this is not good news for Evan Jager is where you're going, Robert. No, it's not. No, it's not. You know, uh, not that the steeple doesn't have world-class athletes, but I think sometimes you don't have the very best flat runners in it. But this guy's running 736 indoors. I mean, coming into this race, the only PRs he had, I mean, he was 822 in 2016. He's only 19, though, so <laughs> officially 19. 822 steeple, 2016. 812, 2017. 822, 2018. Last year, he runs 805 and gets fourth at Worlds. But he opens up at 736. That's pretty scary. Remember all the other good guys we have. Lemetra Goma, who set the Ethiopian record last year to get silver behind Conceslus Kipruto. You've got Conceslus Kipruto himself. Even if he's like sort of 85%, he still wins, manages to win these meets. So, But Evan Jager was back as well over the weekend, Robert. Yeah, he was. But it's just interesting. It's been much easier for the Steepers because we have always said, you know, most U.S. distance runners trying to win a medal, they have to beat the Kenyans and the Ethiopians. And one reason why we have a better shot at the medals than we do the Diamond League circuit is that they can only run three each in the Olympics or World Championships. But historically in the steeple, there's been no no Ethiopians. Now there's a lot of good Ethiopians in the steeplechase. So I just think that makes it very hard for Jager. But you say he's back, and he looks like he's a Let's Run fan, John. Tell him about that. Yeah, so – I was on his Instagram. I was sort of going through Instagram and I saw he had a post the other day and it was a picture of him with sort of a wry smile and the caption said, I'm back, baby. And I kind of thought, you know, I, we, we've had Evan on the podcast and we know he goes to Let's Run from time to time. Uh, didn't know if he frequents the message boards or not, but, you know, Web is back, baby is sort of a Let's Run running joke and people use it for other runners from time to time. And I think... I'd like to think Evan was using that sort of uh, poking fun at that and just sort of, you know, with a little uh, a grin, sheepish grin. But we're happy to see Evan Jager back on the track. It's been since August 2018 was his last race before last weekend. He goes out at Seattle, in Seattle at the University of Washington indoor track. He runs 356.50. He wins the mile, goes 1-2 with teammate Sean McGordy. Nothing special, but also like 356, your first race since August 2018. Not bad at all for February. I, I think that's a fine debut for Mr. Jager. And who knows if he'll race again indoors, but clearly he's pretty fit and hopefully getting fitter. No, I, I think it's significant you know, for him because missing so much with injury, you just want to see that he's healthy. So it's February. It's an Olympic year. You want to be building towards Tokyo. Hopefully we have Tokyo and the coronavirus doesn't cancel it or postpone the Olympics. But, um, you know, 356 and a dominant win, you know, he won by 0.6 of a second. That was impressive. And, folks, he wasn't the only Bowerman track athlete. Jerry Schumacher's athletes are known for hardly ever racing. 
But I guess they do like to race, John, when they do race sort of at obscure venues, indoor time trials. Remember when Lopez yeah, and Long? Seattle's not an obscure venue. I mean, I kind of assumed most of them. I mean, if you want to run USA indoors, the the qualific the declaration window is already passed. You know, it's a very quick indoor season. So if you wanted to run, you kind of need to get a qualifier. That was an opportunity for them to do it. Oh, I know, but what, you know, you're running on an oversized track at a college meet. Would it be too much to ask to run a week or two earlier at an actual real meet like the, you know, New Balance Indoor New Grand Prix Balance or the Armory Grand meet? Prix. Yeah, that, that would have been nice. That would have been we nice. We do some this week with Milrose. Are any of these athletes running Milrose? I don't know. We, we, oh, by the way, folks, before we get, the, we'll be ending the show with Vaporfly talk. But just before that, Jonathan Gall will be previewing the Milrose Championships. But are any of them going? Just real quick now before we get into. I don't see any men in the Ballum in, in the Wanamaker Mile. There's no one in the women's 800. Women's Wanamaker Mile. No, it looks like Ballman's skipping that. Uh, they're not going to be running Milrose at all. Which is a shame, because often they will show show up to Milrose and have at least one or two of their guys race, but doesn't look like they have any entrance this time around. Let's hope that they show up at USA's or something. Otherwise, Jerry... Bowerman, huge thumbs down. Are, are you kidding me? So let's talk about it. Shelby Houlihan, what is she? She's one of the best runners in the world. She only ran, what, 355 last year in the 1500? 354.99, Robert. Give her her due. Okay. She doubled at this meet. She ran a 423 mile, which is you know roughly a 403.1500, and a 201.800. She said she was very pleased with that. Colleen Quigley, who, by the way, beat Houlihan last year to win the U.S. indoor title, she opened up at 3,000, running 844, beating teammates. They actually, Bowerman teammates went one through four. Kate Grace was 846. Courtney Fryer's 847. Steeplechaser, you know, world championship silver medalist. And Vanessa Fraser, 851. Um, you know, I, I just don't understand why Houlihan is not in the Bowerman Women's Mile. I mean, excuse me, the Wanamaker Women's Mile at Milrose this weekend. I mean, it. Can't they make it financially viable enough for her? I don't. I just it, this is. I don't want to go off on this. Um, also, Bowman men. Mark Scott beat Ryan Hill in the men's three thousand seven forty nine to seven fifty. So, John, you didn't ask, but my big takeaways on that are: Hulahan's in great shape. Not a surprise. Um, I am surprised that Kate Grace ran eight forty six in the three thousand, beating Courtney Fryricks. So, I was sort of debating this year. Is Grace going to stick to the fifteen hundred, or is she going to try to go to the eight hundred? Where, you know, it's just she's kind of in between the league. I mean, she did make the Olympic finals four years ago in the eight hundred. She tried to move up to the fifteen hundred without a lot of success, but as stacked as the eight hundred is with Raven Rogers, Ajay Wilson, and Hannah Green, we were, I was thinking eight hundred until recently, and then you've also got um, Sierra Brown. I. Uh, it looks like she's definitely. This is a sign to me, though. She's definitely all in on the fifteen hundred. You're not running a three thousand now if you're going to go back to the eight hundred. But the, the, I think the, in terms of meddling at Worlds or sorry, meddling at the Olympics this year, I still think the eight hundred is easier. The, the the people she has to beat in the fifteen hundred, it's not going to happen. But and also she could make the team in the fifteen hundred. I think making the team probably slightly easier. But you st- you got Hulahan. She's not beating her out. Jenny Simpson's still around. Nikki Hiltz, Danny Jones, Sinclair Johnson. I mean that's. A, it's a tough team to make as well. It's not easy to make an Olympic team, I think, is the lesson. Yeah. What about going out to the 5K, Robert? What do you think about that? No, 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 no. She just ran 846 for, for three three kilometers. 
Well, you know, it might be to make the team. I mean, the 5,000 historically has been sort of easier to make the That's team. That's what I'm Remember, saying. You're Dartmouth alum. Jonathan Galt is a Dartmouth alum, if you guys didn't realize that. But Abby D'Agostino made the Olympics last time after finishing fifth at the trials because a bunch of other women opted for other events. Um, and I'm not sure John might know if the 1,500, 5,000 double is going to be possible at the Olympics. So that could help water down some of the things. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting, you know. I mean – you think because she's run, what does she run for 800? 157, 158? You think, oh, that could potentially medal if she runs that. But I assume the coaches know, like, look, she doesn't have the finish in 800 to medal. I don't know. It's just interesting. I think she's going for the 1500. But and also to me, the other takeaway here is Ryan Hill, I don't know, John, you, you may have the stats, but this is my impression without doing any research. It seems like he hasn't done much recently. The fact that he's losing to Mark Scott here is not a good sign. This guy used to be own the 3K. I, I think his better days are, are past him. Well, he just turned 30 last weekend. I think the bigger problem is he was injured for pretty much all of 2019. But you look at his history, he has a very good record of making U.S. teams. You know, He was the runner-up in 2018 when there wasn't a team to make at USA's. He made the team in 2017. He missed out in 2016, but he did medal World Indoors that year. I mean, I think it's just more you, you, we kind of forget how good he is because he missed all of last year and he doesn't have sort of the the outdoor medals or track record of, you know, Mohamed or, or Evan Jager. But I would expect, you know, if he's healthy, he should be a contender for that 5K team. And I will give you, Robert, you gave them some, Bauman some crap for skipping Milrose, but I've looked at the entries for USA Indoors and it looks like almost all of them are entered. Shelby Houlihan's actually doubling the 15 3K there. And Colin Quigley, Courtney Ferricks, Vanessa Fraser, they're all entered. Ryan Hill's entered. Josh Thompson's entered. So remember, this is a group where many of their training, many of their athletes skipped out last year to run a time trial instead of USA's. So I'm actually happy that they're running USA indoors. And you've got to remember, again, that meets in Albuquerque at altitude. It's a Friday-Saturday meet. So what they would have to do is run Milrose on Saturday, then fly back out west and for a turnaround for another race or two on Friday and Saturday, I'm actually okay because Milrose is directly before USA's. If they want to skip that and just focus on the national championships, I, I can respect that decision. Okay, John, I stand corrected. I will issue a formal apology to Jerry Schumacher, who I respect a great deal. I apologize. The way these schedules are coming up, it was kind of compressed, like Milrose the week before USA's. And remember, folks, this was going to be a world indoor year, but – just after last week's podcast, World Indoors have been postponed for a year because of the coronavirus. They were supposed to be held in China. So, you know, maybe some of these Bowman athletes were actually going to go to Worlds because they were going to run USAs. Who knows? Yeah, it, it, the problem this schedule was flawed from the beginning. And maybe it has to do because USAs were going to be in Albuquerque because of the convention center the, that they're, that's already booked up because they use it for more than just track. Remember, this meet was supposed to be in Staten Island, and then USATF basically took it away from Staten Island. But I think a month between USA having USA indoors on fo- February 14th and 15th when world indoors aren't until a month later, just forcing the athletes to be ready that soon. That was stupid, but it's not really okay. a problem now because there's no, no world it, indoors John, it is a, mess. it is a problem. It is a problem because we didn't, re- I didn't even really have a chance to go off on this because it ended up not meaning that much. It, this is a major How dare problem. you deprive Robert the chance of going off on a topic. We were denied a rant. I, we're going to get the rant anyway. Go Robert. Rojo's rant here. I didn't realize this. You were going to have a month between USA's. First of all, you're holding USA's at altitude in a world championship year when people need to hit the standard. Dumb. You're putting it less than a week after the premier 
or arguably the premier indoor meet in the country. The it's Milrose the premier game. indoor meet. Even as a Boston guy with New Balance indoors, I can respect that Milrose is the premier indoor meet. Okay. I was going to give New Balance indoor Grand Prix some love, but it's just stupid. And then they take it away from New York. I mean, God, these, these federations are amazing. If you listen to the emergency podcast on Friday, we went off on the Kenyan Federation. They've stupidly named their 2020 Olympic marathon team, even though like two or three of the women that are were in debate, debatable for the team are all going to race each other in about two weeks in Tokyo. So just athletics, Kenya, you are so stupid. It's hard to top, but maybe USATF tops you on a regular basis. Um, but John, back to Ryan Hill's chances of the Olympic marathon team. I mean, excuse me, the Olympic 5,000 team. I think we'll agree that the odds of him beating Paul Chilimo aren't good. He also has to beat, remember, Woody Kincaid, although we didn't see Woody. He's a Bowman Track Club athlete. Woody ran 13 flat. Where is he? So Lopez Lamont actually won the USA's last year. So, you know, just a lot of people. I'm No, no I, I mean, if I had to pick right now, if you said guns to my head, does Ryan Hill make the team? Uh, I'm trying to think. Well, who, who made the team last year? We had, I guess, I mean, look, Drew Hunt. But here's the thing. Drew Hunter was going to be on the team. Until he got injured, do you think Ryan Hill's better than Drew Hunter, Robert? I think he was, but I'm not. I mean, I guess you're saying he's hurt, and maybe we'll see the best. Yeah, that's. I mean, I I just think Ryan Hill. He made the team in 2013, 2015, 2017. He was second in 2018. You know, this is a guy who is a very good championship racer. He has a good close. I think if he's healthy, he's got a shot. But we there's still a lot of the season left to play out. If if everyone was focused on the five thousand, no, he doesn't make the team. That means like the, the people like Lopez and the, some of these ten thousand runners. But you know who knows? We'll see. Enough Ryan Hill talk. Okay, let's now talk about that collegiate record on the DMR. I hinted at it earlier. Oregon breaks it, which I, I mean I didn't see this coming at all. I, I was just you know it was a Friday night and getting ready for the Super Bowl. Then suddenly I, I see this tweet pop up that Oregon has broken the collegiate record in the DMR. I'm like, the Oregon men have done this? Like, who, who do they even have on that? I knew they have some sub-four milers, but I didn't think they would have it, you know, to put it together to break this record, which has stood for a long time. I mean, February of, 20, February of 2008 is when the collegiate record was set by the University of Texas. That was coached by uh, Jason Vigilante. And you had on that team Kyle Miller... Denzel Fortson, and then Jacob Hernandez, who was an NCAA champion in the 800, and Leo Manzano, one of the best US 1500 runners of his generation and you know of all time, an Olympic silver medalist eventually, and he made the Olympics that year. And they ran 925-97. And then you've got Oregon running at this meet at the University of Arkansas, essentially soloing it, running 924-52. They took a second and a half off the record, James West led off 253, 53, 1200. Jacob Miller, 400, 47, 47. Charlie Hunter splits 148, on the 800. And then I think most surprising, Kupatia, 355, 45, anchor leg. Kupatia, known to be a very, very good runner. You know, he's run in the 1330s for 5K. He was sixth at NCAA cross. But I don't think people expect and i guess when you run in the 1330s it's not a huge shock that you can run 355 running start for a 1600 but to solo it like that and to do it with the collegiate record on the line i think it is really impressive run so i didn't know if we knew we had quite those wheels 
I think I have two takeaways. One, remarkable job, really impressive to do that all alone to run such a time. Two, I don't think this necessarily guarantees that you're the NCAA favorite. Just because you run a really, really fast time, we've seen so many times it comes down to the anchor leg and Cooper I mean, great guy. Does that mean he's going to anchor them if, I guess, if he's up against some stub miler like Yard Nagus of Notre Dame? I'm just not ready to crown them sort of the NCAA champions yet until we have NCAAs. But I think it's really interesting they put down a marker this early. Yes, and for those of you who may not be hardcore college track and field fans, the DMR is a 1,200, and then, what is it, 400, 800, 1,600, so four legs. But, um, no, first of all, well, uh, those are some good takeaways, John. Not going to lie. But my my, my two takeaways are, are different. My first thought was I can't believe the record is that slow to begin with. The times don't seem that amazing to me. Go Go through the splits again, John. 253 for 1200, 4747, 1480, and 3554. Really, the first three splits, I mean, 253 is not that unusual to see on a 1200. A 47 is nothing. A 148 with a running start. I mean, I had kids at Cornell that could do that. And, you know, and then. Yeah, but that needs to be like your second or third best guy, Robert. Your second or third best mid D guy needs to be able to run one forty. Well, yeah, you low. need two. You need two. You know, studs. The problem is it's hard to get the three fifty five because normally they're not going for time. Right. And there aren't that many. You know, you got to be a three fifty seven miler to do that, and do that from the front alone is very impressive. So Cooper Tier, you get the major props. You you gave them this record. There was no one near them, John. I mean, correct. They broke the collegiate record by a second and a half. So well, I, I, I don't remember. Second I know- place in the, what was second place in this race? Uh, I didn't see exactly what second pl- they were well clear. I mean, it wasn't. I think they had a gap by the end of the the first uh, by the twelve hundred. I mean, you're saying like two fifty three is like nothing. It's not nothing. Two fifty three is still pretty impressive. Like all these times indoors, not easy to hit. I do give them a lot of credit. But if you look at the all time list of some of these other schools, number three on the list is Penn State nine twenty six from twenty fourteen. They didn't win NCAA's that year. Villanova nine twenty seven from. 2015, they didn't win NCAAs that year. Then number five, Penn State from 2016, 927, they didn't win NCAAs that year. I think Oregon, it's going to be really interesting because they just ran by far. I mean, if they run 924 NCAAs, they'll probably win, especially with an altitude, they'll almost certainly win. But, you know, a lot of people, they're not going to be running the same strategy at NCAAs that they do in a qualifying meet. Yes. So, one, Cooper Tier, very impressive. Well, one was, I can't believe it's this slow. Two, Cooper Tier, very impressive. Three, John, you sound like an idiot there. If they run this meet at al- time at altitude, they would like. Okay, yeah, they would win. Like, win but. Um, but in terms of winning, if you wanted to have that be the takeaway for me, of course, this doesn't mean they're going to win. It doesn't mean anything. You have to, there's a difference between running a fast mile and a time trial and then being able to shift gears and blow people away. If, if, if Notre Dame goes with the weak sauce that they did last year of keeping their guys fresh from the DMR with Yard Nagus, of course, they're going to win that thing easily. You know, versus- wow, retroactive Rojo hot take here. No, I mean, but it's just, it's hard to say who's going to be fresh, but, you know, plus he's probably going to be running, well, he's like a, 749, 750, 3000. Oh, you can do the 3000. The easiest double is the 3000 DMR. That's a great double. Yeah. Have Tia run the anchor of the DMR and the 3K. Nagoose, actually, that's what Nagoose should do. You know, if they really want to go all in, have him do the 3K and then simply indoors. But first of all, I'm just realizing, and one of my other takeaways I haven't said here is, folks, Ben Thomas, 
the new Oregon coach. John always is a, is a huge Andy Powell fan and loving Andy Powell. I'm not saying Andy Powell isn't a good coach, but can we just admit, John, will you finally admit that Ben Thomas is an amazing mid-distance coach? You're acting like I'm shitting on Ben Thomas. You are the person who didn't have any appreciation for Ben Thomas. You, you're like, who is this guy? And then once your friend tells you after they hired him, Ben Thomas is a really good coach, now you're all over him. I didn't have it's any a, appreciation. You're acting like I don't what think are you this guy's good. About? Don't you remember two years ago in the NCAAs, they won the DMR, Virginia Tech. I've always had appreciation for him. And the the story that you're referring to is I asked someone in the college coaching ranks, John refers to him or her as my friend. I, I didn't say that. I said, hey, are you going to try to look at the Virginia Tech job? And they said, are you crazy? I don't want to follow up the greatest middle distance coach in the NCAA. So I have these sources, the sources that know that Donovan Brazier is better than Grant Fisher. Boom. Sources that know that Ben Thomas is an incredible coach. And this is proven here. But I, I'm just realizing something right now, John. I was doing a little research. This Props to Oregon. This was done on a legitimate track. This was done at Arkansas on a 200-meter bank track. Second place was 936 Texas, which is not going to get them into the show. So they win by like 12 seconds, almost 12 seconds, on a real legitimate track. I assume this was done at Washington, which yeah, it was I'm not. Oregon used to run the oversized – it's interesting to me. Oregon used to run the oversized track at the UW. Now that Andy Powell, the former Oregon coach, has gone to UW, are they skipping out on that meet and going to other places? Well, I'm I'm very interesting development because obviously Seattle is a much easier trip from Eugene than Fayetteville. But also, Robert, in the women's DMR in Seattle, the officials got it wrong. They didn't. They couldn't. They had to rerun the DMR the next day because of uh, I think what improper handoff. So you didn't have that going on in Arkansas. Did they rerun it? I didn't know that. I, I did see that they blew. So I think it was on the 800. You know, it's an oversized track. So it's like, I think every lap is like 320 meters. Somehow they lined up. I think up. it's 307 meters. I think it's somehow <laughs> they handed off, I think, between the 8 and the 16. I think they, the 800 meter runners only ran one lap. So they only ran like 300 meters. Like, wouldn't you know not to, hand, I guess if the miler's there, I, well, I don't if the know. guy's there, what are you going to do? Blow by them and yeah. you're going to have to hand it off at some point. I will say finding the exchange zones for a 307 meter track on a DMR has got to be a huge pain in the ass. And I wouldn't want that job. So I can kind of understand how a mistake would be made, but that, that's kind of unfortunate. You would think, and I've, we used to, well, back when I was coaching at Cornell, John, let me pat myself on the back. We repeatedly were breaking over Ivy League records. I broke the Ivy League distance. Well, I, I was out there running 4,000 meter DMR. <laughs> used to drive the women's coach nuts when I would say I did this. My beloved team, <laughs> my beloved Cornell runners, we broke the Ivy League record back to back years. We broke the Ivy League DMR record with a B team. Well, not with a B team, but not even with my best miler. He warmed up, said, I'm hurt. And we put another guy on the ankle leg, but that was on the oversized track at DMR. And you pretty much just, you know, tell, but they, that's like their only time there, but they kind of know like, okay, you're going to be standing right here. So, but I guess if you're only 80 meters off, anyways, I saw that they had handed off wrong. And I, someone on the message board said they were standing next to Andy Powell at the time. And he's like, he went up to the official and said, I hope, you know, you just blew their only chance for nationals, but apparently they ran it the next day. Did anyone get in? Do we know? Yeah. So they ran it the next day and, Times look really good, actually. BYU runs 10.53.95, which they say is a Dempsey record. So that's the fastest time ever on the Washington track. And then University of Washington ran 10.56, which is the number two time in school history. And 
almost assuredly an NCAA qualifier, according to the Washington website. So they 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 did really well, and uh, I'm I'm glad that those two teams. I don't know. I can't speak for every school in the team, every school in the race, but I'm glad those two teams were still able to get it done. Very impressive, John. Very impressive. Moving on. Yeah, let's move on. Let's do some road racing. You ready to talk road racing in Japan, Robert? Oh, yes, I am, because that'll leave, that'll allow me to sneak in some oh, yeah. in my talk before I'm allowed <laughs> to talk about it officially at the end of the podcast. Of course. All right. Well, let's uh, I know there was a first half marathon in Maragami. Let's let's actually start, though, with the marathon, the Beppu Oita marathon, because there's a very neat story that was highlighted by Brett Lawner of Japan Running News, who does a great job covering all the running action in Japan. And Robert, have you heard about Yuya Yoshida? Yes, I am. I'm all about him. Very familiar with this story. Yeah, crazy story. So this is a guy, he's essentially a spare on his college team until his senior year. And then he comes in. Yeah, I, him. I, I think by spare, that meant like he had never. So the big race in Japan is the Hakon or Hakon. Yeah, Hakon, Hakone Academy. Hakon yeah. Academy. It's on January 2nd and January 3rd every year. It has existed since 1920. So this was the 100th year anniversary, I guess. Might not be the 100th year. Probably stopped a few times for the wars. But um, he had never made their team, I don't think, for the Hakon Academy. So there's 10 legs. So he was never theoretically in the top 10 on his college team until this year. Yeah. And then he runs and he goes out and he crushed the course record, according to Brett Liner on Hakone's fourth stage, helps his school at Yamakakoena University to the overall win. And then a month later, runs his marathon debut in 208.30. I mean, could you imagine if an American kid does this? He comes out, isn't even on those teams top seven helps them win NCAAs. And then a month later runs a two Oh eight 30 marathon. I mean, we'd have like a black page. Let's run the, the forums will be crashing. It's totally amazing. So big congrats and, there to Yuya Yoshida. And you missed part of the best part of about the story was after the Konak, then he, he had said at the time, this is it. This is my last race. Like he said, he was done with running. I guess someone convinced him, Hey buddy, you might want to try to just, but to hop in a marathon a month later. So he was actually, not only that, in this race, he got the lead at the 39-kilometer mark. Now, it ended up being won by, I think, by Moroccan in 2801. So he kind of last 3K, didn't quite have it. But it's the second fastest debut ever by a Japanese athlete. It's the second fastest collegiate time by ever a Japanese athlete. So it, A, to me, it shows that the Japanese are made for the marathon, but very impressive by this guy. B, he's now apparently not so sure that he's not going to run post-collegiately. But C, John... We've got it. I'm, I'm still saying you got to add an, a minute and a half, two minutes to this. Do you do you even know what shoes he was wearing, Robert? I'm assuming it was the Vaporflies. Do, do we know for sure, John? It's like I don't even need. I, I always say I don't even need to drug test some of these guys. I know some of them are. I can tell you, like that person's on drugs. That guy's on the Vaporflies. <laughs> I will pay five hundred dollars if he was not in the Vaporflies to someone who can send me. Oh, no shit. Did I say five hundred? Okay, I'm gonna drop it down. You said five hundred dollars. That's two, okay. two, almost two pairs of vapor flies right there. Okay. No, you can you will, drop it down. Yeah, I won't hold you to that. Drop it down. I will pay two. I will buy you someone a brand new pair of the Nike Nike vapor flies next percents if they can prove to me that he was not wearing some sort of Nike vapor fly technology 
um, in that race. All right. The other story coming out of that race, Beppu Oita, Robert, is Yoshida was the 100th Japanese man to break 210 in the marathon. And actually, two other guys did it for the first time in that race. So Japan now has 102. That stat also courtesy of Brett Lana. Robert, how many Americans do you think have broken 210 in the marathon? I think I may have seen the tweet. I think it's just around 11. No, you're shortchanging the U.S. a little bit. 21. But still lacking. No, and and I often annually in my week that was. By the way, folks, if you haven't been to the actual homepage, please go to letsrun.com on a daily basis. We can, we're getting half a page, half a penny of revenue from you every page you look at. But the week that was, our weekly recap, our weekly written recap is back after its winter hiatus. And normally at least once a year, I compare U.S. distance running to Japanese distance running and show you how much more depth there is at the marathon in, in Japan. So it doesn't surprise me. But that's part of the problem about the vapor flies is these sub-210s are going to be so common now. Again, you're going to have to add two minutes to these times, I, I think. So it's going to kill these historical perspectives and what it means. But hey – as long as in the back of her head we think you had two minutes to it, it'll be okay. Okay, yeah, Robert's telling you to visit the website. I would say, you know, if you're feeling generous, why not rate and review the Let's Run.com podcast? Give us five stars, add some sort of comment or review, share it to your friends, get the word out. You know, if you like this and you want other people to have some joy in their life, why not spread it to them? You don't need to, you know, we don't need to limit giving to the holiday season, people. Uh, okay, so let's wait, move. John. John, not only should they rate and review, but really the best thing is they should tell their running buddies about the podcast. Word of mouth is the best way to get listeners, and also you can always tip Jonathan Galt in the tip jar. I think there's a, a at the bottom of the podcast or somewhere you can find it. I don't really know how it works, but we've been getting more and more tips. John, I think you got another fifty dollar tip. Uh, I got a twenty dollar tip last week, and I got a shout out the person who gave it to me. I believe it was. Yeah, it was David. Thank you very much to David for a $20 tip. And how about, you know, if anyone else is feeling generous, wouldn't be opposed to you donating. But biggest thing is for you guys to spread the word about the podcast to your friends, family, anyone who likes running. So, John, I'm also looking at the tip thing here. Did get a $1 tip from one of my former Cornell runners. Now, I don't want to say his name. $1 may be viewed as cheap, but hey, he's giving more than most of you. So. I'll take one dollar. I appreciate anything. I'm I'm happy to. One dollar recurring who, though ends up being a lot better, John. Right? Yeah, yeah. Re- recurring one. How about one dollar a month? Is you know that that's that's Sweet. really great. But let's let's people don't want to hear about my tips. People want to hear about running talk, Robert. So let's give it to them. Marigame Half Marathon in Japan, national records galore. We had Brett Robinson. It was actually a great race if you watched like the final few kilometers. Really close battle between several guys. The top ten, the top four guys were all separated by. Just uh, nine seconds in this race. Brett Robinson of Australia gets the win. And he was actually, he was following the lead vehicle and he sort of followed it off course for a second or two and then had to come back onto the course. And fortunately, fortunately for him, it didn't cost him sub 60 or the win or the national record. He got all three of those, 59, 57, Brett Robinson of Australia taking the victory in an Australian record. Second place, Yusuke Ogura of Japan, 60 flat. He did just miss breaking 60, 60 minutes, but he got the Japanese record in that race. Taku Fujimoto of Japan also running 60.06, and he broke the previous Japanese record, but he didn't 
get the current Japanese record because he was only the second Japanese finisher in that race. And then third place, Callum Hawkins. I do feel a little bit bad for Callum. He's becoming sort of Mr. Near Miss in a lot of these races. He was 60-01. He ran 60 flat this race in 2017. He's also been fourth in the last two world championships and was leading the Commonwealth Games marathon uh, with about a mile or two to go in 2018 and ended up passing out due to the heat. So he's someone who has been very close in a lot of these things, still hasn't broken 60, still hasn't gotten that world championship medal, maybe the Olympics this year for him. But it's 60-01, still a really good run for him and a really exciting race up front on the men's side. Yeah, John, I mean, and then for the women, you've got uh, Halele Johannes. Did you mention that women? Talk no, I didn't mention the women. You can give us the women's recap. Three national here. records. Halele Johannes, Namibia, 68-10. She got the win. Um, 68-35 for Kun Sun Cho of Korea, South Korea. 68-35. Their national record was over 70. 70 of six going in. So a minute and a half off that. And then Canada, the national record there has fallen three times in like a month, just over a month. It's now 69-38 for Andrea Sakafian, um, beating Natasha Wodex 69-40, which lasted for like a couple of weeks, which – <laughs> you know, uh, Rachel Cliff had 70.06. So uh, no one in Canada had, before the vapor flies, their record was 70.47. Now it's 69.38. So that just shows you we're talking, you know, I would say a minute at least and a half, and then two minutes or more in the marathon because of these shoes. But John, we talked about the 60 minute barrier. Brett Robinson, congrats to you. I always liked the Aussies. I, 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 I remember meeting, um, John, why is my brain not working? Aussie 1500-meter guy? Ryan Gregson. Yeah, I, Gregson and Robinson. I met both these guys when they're like in their – now they're, they're probably five or six years apart in age, but I met them both when they were quite young. But, it's, you know, you see an English speaker, you talk to them, fans of Let's Run, I assume. Anyways, he breaks 60, which is good. But this Japanese guy, Yusuko Oguro, he crosses the line, puts his hands up. He sees 59-58, puts the hands up. I started a thread. I think this cost him the 60 because they round up. So I think he probably ran like 59-59.1 boom they ran that up to 60 yeah th- this is the this is a road racing lesson for everyone or it doesn't even need to be road racing anytime you see a clock at the finish line don't trust that it's going to be exactly a time this really applies to road racing i'd say more than track you know unless you're way under the mark that you're planning on celebrating run all the way hard through the line then you'll have plenty of time to celebrate afterwards but come on if- but people but with modern technology, why are we rounding these times up? If this guy runs 59, 59.1, give him a sub 60. Well, yeah, Robert, what about Nick Wade, right? Didn't he run 359.998 or something when he was running for you and that didn't count as a sub four? It was not for me. It was for my my successor, Cornell Zebling, the year after I left. Yeah, but one of my old Cornell runners ran 359.998, but that at least is over 0.5. I can see why you'd round that up. But. Anyways, so five five national records fall in this one race. Kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, I, I, w- one thing – well, I, I won't go off in the favorite place. I promise you, John, until the end of the podcast. All right, good. Uh, let's move on then. How about Gemma Riki, Great Britain? I don't think anyone saw this coming. She trains under Andy Young, so she's training partners with Laura Muir and Gabriella Debuse Stafford. She comes out in Glasgow, runs 157.91. Not only is it a British indoor record, it's a four-second PR, indoors or outdoors, and it's the fastest time indoors since 2006. I mean, Robert, let's be honest. Did you know who Gemma Riki was before last weekend? 
John, John, you're stealing my question. Did you know who she was? You're the one that's British. And so answer the question. Yes, I did. I knew that she was in that training group. I didn't expect her to run 157, but I knew that she was, I knew who she was. Well, this is interesting about who we knew, know and don't know. Generally, we're very much into the collegiate scene. The, the, the college scene in the U.S. is an amazing talent development pool. People can say whatever they want. It's amazing. It's very hard. It's amazing that we didn't know people didn't really know who she was. You also they, dodged my question, Robert. You never said if you knew her or not. Uh, if you the silence I, I, speaks I, I probably, probably no. If you asked me the name, I would have said British runner. I assume I would not have known that she was twenty one. Jamariki is a very British name. Can we just let's just okay. put that on the record? She had already run two hundred one and four hundred two flat. She ran worlds last year at age twenty one. But the problem was you had to run like four minutes to make to make the final. So she went out in the heats there. So if you're going out in the heats in the pro circuit, you're not really being noticed. But 401, I mean, she's better um, than, you know, any of the NCAA runners who I'm very high on, John. Sinclair Johnson of the United States and Jessica Hull. Jessica Hull I mean, of Jessica Australia. Jessica Hull ran 401 last year as well and made the semifinals at Worlds. Yes, but Jessica Hull was already a big name when she was running 409, 408 in the stage, runs 405. I mean, running 405, she's on national TV in the United States. You know, she's a big name running five. This girl was significantly faster than that at the time. So we didn't know who she was really. But John, this is such a crazy story. She's already accomplished. She's already focusing more on the 1500. But she's run 201. She skips at, at that level to skip not just the two flats, not just the 159s, but also the 158 in one race. Like where your dreams become reality. This is the segment. Jim Ariki, enjoy it because you're never going to – I mean, God, if she ran another PR like that, she'd probably have the world record. So, so crazy. And if you watch the video, we have it on the week that was. I, I have the final lap. It looks like she's sprinting and she just blows by Laura Muir. She's closing like 28. Very impressive. Well, Robert – Very impressive. We're going to get to the full Milrose preview in a minute, but – Let's just preview this right now, the women's mile, because it suddenly got a lot more interesting. Gemma Riki is running the Wanamaker mile. She's coming to Milrose and running that race. You've also got in that race Sinclair Johnson in her professional debut, the NCAA champion from Oklahoma State. You've got Gabriella Debus Stafford, who ran 356 in the World Championship final last year, who is Riki's training partner. You've got Shannon Osika. You've got Danae Rivers, the NCAA 800 meter champion. You've got Constanza Klosterhalfen who was a world medalist in the 5,000 last year and won this mate re- this meet, the want to make a mile easily last year. You've got Danny Jones, NCAA champion in the 5,000 meters. You've got Nikki Hiltz, Ellie Puria. I mean, the 800s are also stacked, so I'm not going to proclaim this immediately race of the meet, but how, how excited are you for this women's mile right now? Pretty excited. Not going to lie, but... Let's talk about who can win it, John. There's a lot of big names. There's a lot of NCAA names. But in terms of – break it down for me. In terms of potential winners, how many do we really have? I would say Coco. I would say there's Reedy. three potential winners. Coco, Gabrielle Debus, stafford and Gemma Ricci. Yeah. Now, maybe I, – I don't know what kind of shape Sinclair Johnson's in. I mean, Sinclair Johnson to get fourth at USA's last year, but – I don't think I don't think so. I, well, I, I just think Hill, if, if you're giving Sinclair Johnson, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, so, but John, so it, let's give a small clap to Milrose. They actually brought in someone from overseas, but some might argue, hey, they only bringing in 
Yeah, still no Africans in the race, but yes. it is a very- I, I don't want to say it's a racial thing. I mean, I I, I don't necessarily, you know, I mean, they have minorities from the United States, but the lack of Africans that run the, the, the Wanamaker Mile every year and the Milrose, uh, I mean, excuse me, the Fifth Avenue Mile is amazing. Like, they just never come over. You know, would it be too much to bring in Beatrice Chipkowicz, the world record holder in the steeplechase? You know, she did run. We're talking about the Dusseldorf meet. Uh, the, the the other distance event that we did not talk about yesterday was the women's 1500. Beatrice Chipkowicz won it in 402 flat. So she's in shape. She would be a nice addition. But, hey. I'm still excited. Yes. Would it, the race be better with Beatrice Chipkowicz? Yeah, but it would be better with like Faith Kipigon and Stefan Hassan and all these other women as well. So can't always get everything you want. Let's go. All right. Let's go to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Robert, we have another Mary Kane siding. We have an Allison Felix. Allison Felix, I'm kind of shocked that she's she ran this race in Ann Arbor. Presumably, she didn't get any appearance fees or anything like she will at Milrose. But she runs a 60. It's her first indoor race since 2016. Runs 7.35, which is her slowest indoor time since 2005. But she also just hasn't really run. She's only This is only her third indoor season that she's run since then. And she did win the race. She's running Milrose this weekend, also in the 60. And then Mary Kane ran a 3.30... Sorry, not 3.32. 4.42 mile. Uh, finished sixth in that race. Any, any takeaways from those results? Yes. One... Well, that's not good for Felix. I mean, she wouldn't even make the NCAA meet with that time. She'd be 24th in the NCAA right now. I think it's a good sign that she is just competing, trying to get the rust off, not going to wait until, you know, I think last year she didn't compete until July. Um, Two, I don't know. I'm not that excited about Alex and Felix. We're going to have her hyped as the greatest Olympian ever. To me, it seems like, the whole point is just to find your way in one of these watered down relays so she can get another gold medal. She only has to be like the U.S.'s like 10th. No, 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 excuse me, 10th. How about she could probably be like the U.S.'s 6th or 8th best 400-meter runner and still win a gold medal at some some level because she could run the prelim round. Oh, no, think about this. If if you're like her, the 8th best 400 runner, okay, let's say the top six all run the heats and final heats and or finals of the 4 by 4 and then the, maybe the next two from that run the final of the the mixed gender relay. Maybe if you're the 10th best runner, you run the prelims of the mixed gender relay to get them in the final. I mean, she doesn't have to be that good to get another Olympic gold, assuming they're either going to win the 4x4 or the mixed gender 4x4. That's what I'm saying, folks. If you know what we're talking about, they're going to have the 4x4 at the Olympics, the men's and women's, and they're going to have a mixed gender where there's two men and two women. But they also run prelims. And if you run a leg on the prelim, you also get a gold medal. So just give her the gold medal now. I don't think she's going to be a factor in an individual win. I would love to be proven wrong, but hey. So anyway. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not writing her off in an individual event because she – you know, she was coming back from a, a very difficult pregnancy last year. She is a fantastic, you know, 400 runner. She was the silver medalist in Rio in 2016. I obviously know she's older. She's now 34 years old. But I think if she's healthy and gets a full season of training, she could make the team in the individual 400. Is she going to beat Salwa Nasser or Shawnee Milowebo? Absolutely not. But, you know, I, I think it'll be it's going to be interesting to see her actually fight to make the team, whereas usually at the trials, we know she's on the team. Yeah, it'd be interesting. But as for Mary Kane, you know, it was interesting to see that result. One, 
nothing really changed. It, it reminded me that she is a good runner. I mean, 4.42 is a really good collegiate time, but it's just so far from being world-class in, in terms of what you need in terms of making the Olympics and, and stuff like that, that it's, I don't know. I, I don't think she'll be a factor this year. I don't think she'll be in the trials. Um, you know, but I guess, you know, actually 442 should be right around where Allison Felix is in NCAA. She'd be like 24th. Yeah. The 442 doesn't really change my thinking on her very much based on what we already saw from her race at the armory. I don't think we need to spend any more time on Mary Kane. We've talked about her plenty. How about this though, Robert? So let's give a little quick Super Bowl talk real fast. Did I am sure you watched actually you said you didn't even watch that much of the Super Bowl. Do you have any comments or hot takes coming out of the Super Bowl? Well, I, I watched a decent amount of it. I just didn't get to watch it all in its entirety because my son was being trying to be put to bed. Um Did did Clayton watch the halftime show with J Lo and Shakira? Oh my god, he was fascinated by it. I have a two year old. <laughs> we have a huge projector. He stood up and was like watching these people dance and was like dancing. He kind of likes to try to dance. It, it, he loved it. He loved it. It's been criticism, it. Robert, that it's not family friendly, but you allowed your son. Uh, what to do you mean? No, he loved it. He thought it was great. See people dancing, having fun, enjoying life. You know, I mean, I, I it was it, it's natural for a child to dance. So he liked that. But then I missed, I basically missed the third quarter because I tried to get him to go to bed. And then I, I looked at my phone and I was so pissed. I, I got irate at ESPN. Like they're giving me, I look at my phone, I'm taping the game. I look down at my phone and it's like, Entering the fourth quarter, the 49ers are up by 10 points. And oh, I'm that's on you, that. Robert. You got to know, not, you got to turn your alerts on silent or something or mute your notification. I did turn them off at that point. So then I turned on the game. I wanted Kansas City to win, but I don't know. I'm not really thrilled now. Now I'm going to have to hear about how good Patrick Mahomes is. And I wanted Shanahan to lose. I told you, I think I said this on the podcast. Maybe I didn't admit it. I don't like it when people younger than me are like excelling at a really high level. It makes me feel old. Like, God damn it. If Shanahan can win a Super Bowl at 30 something, maybe I should be coaching the goddamn Super Bowl. So, but now I think it's pile on like what an idiot he is. He probably should have run on like the second and five with about five minutes left. I also thought he should have run in second down with about 156 left. But anyway, 156 left. They were down. They were chasing the game, Robert. You can't. They had three timeouts. They were on the other team's 48 yard line. I realized they were having trouble passing on third and long. So, running second and six, you get third and two or three. It's easy to pick up. I think it's pretty. I don't. I don't think you can have that much fault with the way he called the game. And that second and five you mentioned, he had Kittle and he had Samuel open in the flat, and he just they got pressure and Chris Jones batted the ball down. I mean, I think it was a good play. They just sometimes the defense comes up and makes a play. I don't think you can fault them that much. You got to get the first downs. You got. You can't run the clock without getting a first down. Yeah, it's just one or two plays in these games. Like a bunch, you know this better than anyone. As a New England Patriots fan, you know this better. There's several Super Bowls the Patriots probably should have won. Like the one against the damn David Tyree's undefeated season catch against the Giants, and some you should have lost that you did win, like the Seattle game. So you make you you make the big plays, you win the game. John, we don't want to break. No, nobody wants to hear us talk about the Super Bowl. They want to hear you talk about Tyreek Hill. That's why I know you brought this up. Right, right. Yes, this is why I brought it up. So Tyreek Hill, who caught the big pass in the Super Bowl, the third and fifteen, to sort of key the comeback. Tell the tell the non-US listeners who he is. He's a wide receiver. He's fast as hell. Yeah, Tyreek Hill is a wide receiver. So yeah, the fastest players in the NFL are usually wide receivers and defensive backs who are the guys who defend the wide receivers. And Tyreek Hill actually was a very good sprinter in high school. He ran 20.14, which is the number three time all time by an American high schooler in the 200 meters. I mean, that's outstanding. Um 
He made the NCAA meet when he ran one year of NCAA track at Oklahoma State in 2014. He finished fifth in the indoor 200. He hasn't raced since then. But the the big news coming out of Media Week because you know for non American fans the Super Bowl the whole week is just hype and all American sports writers descend on Miami or on the site of the Super Bowl and just come up with storylines and everything because they have to be filing new stuff every day. And one of the things Tyreek Hill said is that he wants to try out for the Olympic team this summer. And he didn't actually use the phrase Olympic trials, which was kind of strange. He was, I think he called it the Olympic tryouts or something like that. It was, it was like, I don't know exactly if he knows how the sport works because he's been in the NFL for a few years now, but he does know his own limitations because he says he wants to try out for the team and he's serious about it. But he also said he needs to drop about 20 pounds because he's now about 195. And when he was sprinting in high school, he was around 170. And he's 5'10. So 5'10, 190. You know, for a sprinter, he just said, Look, I'm carrying too much weight. I need to get down. And I don't think he said, he didn't come out and say, he's going to make the team. He said he wants to try out for it. And then you see on Twitter, you have these videos circulating, showing how Tyreek Hill would have done in the Olympic 200 meter final in 2016. And they had this line and they're like, oh yeah, he would have done great. He would have been the medals. It's like, well, yeah, but you're assuming he could have run his personal best in the Olympic final after three rounds. Like there's just so many different assumptions going into this. What I do think though, is most of the time when track and field, when NFL players say they're going to run track or they, they think they could make the Olympic team or do something like that. Most of them are just full of shit because the guys in track and field are faster. And especially because the guys in track and field have been training for it for several years. Tyree kill is a guy who, if he had just focused on track and field coming out of high school, you could see him making a world championship or an Olympic team with his talent. But the big question is he's been he hasn't been focusing on sprinting for several years. Okay, how, John. You know, how can he do how much sprint speed does he still have left over? Robert, do you think he makes the trials? Do you think he makes the team? Where does his journey end here? John, what do you call it when someone has a uh, monologue? Let me interrupt your monologue here. That was quite some long Yeah, call. sorry, I gotta be more concise there. Anyways. I'm very excited about this. He is a world class sprinter. 20.14 in high school. Do people realize, like Noah Lyles, remember he was a big deal four years ago? He got fourth in the Olympic trials in the 200. He ran 20 point. His best win legal time that year was 2009. So this guy was basically as good as Noah Lyles in high school. So, yes, I think he makes the trials easily if he wants to do it. He needs to start training now. Hopefully he has like one week off to enjoy the Super Bowl and get going, folks. And, yeah, when these guys mouth off about being good – a lot of them aren't good. And in the NFL, most of the speed is actually interesting. You, you could be like, if you're a good 60 guy, you'd be a good wide receiver because you don't need to have, you know, 200 meter speed. It's interesting that his best event in high school was the 200. Um, you know, and it, it just shows you, though, that how important his speed is. Probably the biggest play in the Super Bowl was it was like third and 15. They're down by 10 points. They're screwed. This guy is wide open 40 yards down the field because he just the, the other team's safety was scared to death. You know, it was amazing. So I think he definitely makes the trials. I think he could make the team. Um, I hate, but not if he who's he gonna be training with? Who's his shoe sponsor? If somebody's smart, they sign him right now, they put him in a major group and get going. I'm assuming he already has a shoe contract. Most NFL players have shoe sponsors, but I don't think I think he has a very very small chance to make the team because think about this, Robert. All right, who else? If say his best events the two hundred, 
you know, maybe, maybe he tries out for the hundred, but so let's say his best events the two hundred. Well, he's not beating Noah Lyles, and Christian Coleman also going to be trying out for two hundred. Well, he's not going to beat Christian Coleman, so that's two spots off the board. And then what if Michael Norman decides to do the two hundred as well? Maybe Michael Norman, after being you know sort of chastened last season, he only does the four hundred. So maybe maybe there's one spot available, and someone might get hurt or whatever. But a lot of these guys in Olympic years they like to double up. If those three guys run the trials in the 200, there's no way he's beating any of them if they're healthy. You know, maybe maybe one of them gets injured or decides not to double up. But it's the 200 usually is sort of the easiest U.S. sprint team to make, and this year it could be the hardest. So people are saying on the, on the internet, John, that he would have medaled because he ran a 20, whatever it was. Can someone remind me? Remember one year there was after the year it was like 2001 Worlds a time over 10 seconds won the men's 100 that was when um, Kim Collins won yeah how in the world did 20.02 win Andre DeGrasse a silver medal and 20.12 win a bronze medal at the Olympics same boat won in 1978 do you know how terrible that is yes you say I mean it's just amazing how much different four years ago. goes. Last year, this is just the U.S. list. Noah Lyles, 1950. Michael Norman, 1970. Kenny Baderek, 1982. Christian Coleman, 1991. Craven Gillespie, 1993. Andrew H- So five guys under 20. Andrew Hudson, 2004. So, yeah, it's hard. But he's got world-class talent. We'll see what happens. Yeah, but Robert, you, Robert, you're acting like running sub-20 in a world championship final is really easy. I mean, look at the results last year. Noah Lyles... Only ran 1983 in Doha in the World Championship Final. 1995, Andre de and 1998, Alex Quinones was the other medalist. Like, it can be tough after three rounds of the 200, especially someone like de who had already run three rounds of the 100. Like, that, that I think more than anything explains these slow times is the best 200 guys have also run the two, 100, and many of them are tired. Someone like Andre de remember in the semis in Rio, he went. He ran like 1980, I believe, in the semifinals. I'm just looking up his time right now. Yeah, he was in Bolt's heat, and Bolt ran 1978, and DeGrasse ran 1980, and their strategy was essentially they were hoping to tire out Bolt in the semifinal so that DeGrasse would have a chance in the final against a tired Bolt, and Bolt's the best, so that didn't work. But that's why DeGrasse only ran 2002, is because he really went to the well in the semi. And yeah, I just think, yeah, it's it's very tough. To, that's why Bolt sort of needs to be regarded as a total legend is because his two 200-meter world records came in his sixth race or seventh race of these championships, 2008 Olympics, 2009 Worlds. He did it after he'd already broken the 100 world record. That's how good this guy is. He made it look easy, but it's not always easy. Yeah, and it would be surprising, you know, that if in four months – he could make an Olympic team considering these other guys have been training for four years. So it'd be shocking if he could get back to his high school times, to be honest, but Hey, all the more power to him. And it's a shame. We don't have some sort of relay. Like swimming has so many goddamn relays. Why can't we have a four by two, put him on it so we could at least see him run the prelims or something like that. And Wait, you complained about Allison Felix getting these weak gold medals. And now you no. want to have more weak ass relays. Well, if we're going to have him at least let, let, let an NFL oh, guy do it. No, please. IOC, no four by two in the in the Olympics, and get rid of the mixed gender four by four while you're at it. I want to see like a Kansas City Chiefs singlet. Anyways, John, we have a cool story here. Let's moving on. Maybe we should talk about this. When we're talking about Oregon. It's been announced. You're the one that found this. That Oregon is going to 
sort of have its Mount Rushmore at the new Hayward Field, which is going to be unveiled soon. On the tower, a 10-story tower, they're going to have like the faces. I guess Mount Rushmore only has, what, four presidents though, right, John? Right. They're going to have five icons on this tower. Folks, if you're listening at home, think about all the great legends of Oregon track and field over the year. You've got Matthew Centrowitz, an Olympic champion. You've got Galen Rupp, Edward Chedrick, 17 or 18 NCAA titles, Bill Delager, Woking Crows, Ashton Eaton, Steve Prefontaine, Otis Davis, Bill Bauman, Raven Rogers, Mac Wilkins. Of those people, who do you put in the tower? Phil Knight, even. You could put a little scrub like Phil. Yeah. I'm going to give, I'll give the fans maybe like two seconds to think. Pause the podcast right now. Think about who you want to be on the tower, who you would pick. Here's who Oregon has picked. We've got Bill Bowerman. Now, remember, this tower was supposed to be named after Bill Bowerman. It was supposed to be the Bowerman Tower. And then his family came out and said that that's not what he would have wanted. They asked that they keep his name off. But they are going to be honoring him. So I don't know if that one's negotiable or not. But Bowerman's on the tower and then four athletes. Otis Davis who was the first Oregon Duck to win Olympic track and field gold. He won the 60, uh, the, sorry, he won the 400, the 1960 Rome Olympics, and also the 4x4. Steve Prefontaine, uh, we all know him. Ash Neaton, former world record holder in the decathlon. Still see, sounds a little weird to be saying former world record holder with Ash Neaton, but two-time Olympic gold medalist, some would argue the greatest decathlete of all time, certainly in the conversation. And Raven Rogers who won five NCAA 800 titles and anchored Oregon to the legendary Triple Crown 2017. She came from behind to deliver the 4x4 victory, the team title, and the cross-country indoor-outdoor sweep in 2016-17 at Haywood Field. Those are the, the four athletes and the coach, Bowman. Robert, do you have any issues with these selections? Not really. I mean, I, I think that the first four were obvious picks. Um, I mean, Otis Davis isn't the household name, but it's clearly Steve Prefontaine, Ashton Eaton, and Bill Bowerman are going to be on there. And then Otis Davis, how do you argue with the first Olympic gold medalist? Um, and then I think, I don't know, I, I think you want to have some diversity. You want to have a woman on there. I think Raven Rogers is probably the most famous. I don't know if she's the most famous, but probably the most accomplished at a collegiate level for the Ducks. Yeah, I mean, you could argue maybe Brianne Thyssen Eaton. Uh, she she won a bunch of NCAA titles. She was the world indoor champion in the pentathlon. So she's another one that you could maybe argue is up there. I, I'm fine with Rogers if you're going to include a woman, especially because of that four by four was just so legendary. That race. I mean, if you want to if you want to talk about like most accomplished athletes, well, no man won more NCAA titles for Oregon or any school than Edward Cheserek, but you know, his it's a it's a little hard to assess him historically because he's still competing right now. And you know, I think a lot of people would still say Steve Prefontaine or Ash Neaton is sort of more important to the program or just bigger stars than Cheserek. So, if you want to make the case for Cheserek, I certainly think he has one. But I, I'm pretty okay with the, the list they have. I mean, I, I think Cheserek was. It's interesting. Like, who was a more accomplished collegiate athlete? Cheserek won way more NCAA titles than Prefontaine, but Prefontaine was sort of world class when he was in college. That would be fascinating. Like Nike, let's give me a break, John. Nike's going to put up a Skechers-sponsored athlete on the wall of fame over Steve Prefontaine. No chance in hell. 
Well, I mean, he'd be wearing his Oregon Nike singlets. And know. Matthew Sinchowitz, while he's won an Olympic gold, I, I don't. He didn't have a lot of. I mean, he did win some NCAA titles, but it wasn't he won like one he was, NCAA title. I think it. it I it don't wasn't think like he was an icon in college or anything, and carrying the ducks like like Cheserick was all the time. So. Yeah, no, I I think Centro is as great as he's been as a professional. I think probably shouldn't be on this on this tower unless you're going to expand it. Obviously, he's an Oregon legend, but his legend most legendary accomplishment was Olympic gold. And, and we didn't mention Salazar. I mean, obviously, they're not going to put Salazar on there right now. Yeah, well, Galen Rupp, Robert, you're not going to fight for Galen Rupp. He what he had one of the best years maybe ever by an Oregon Duck, 2009, 2008, 2009. No, because if they put Galen Rupp on there, then they're totally going to be accused of being racist over Cheserick. Yeah, that's fair. Um, no, I think that, you know, these people, no one's going to come out and say, wow, these, like, no one's going to argue Bowerman. No one's going to argue against Otis Davis or Steve Prefontaine, Ashton Eaton, Raven Rogers. I don't think anyone's going to say, wow, this person really shouldn't be on there. And I think that's probably the sign that they did something right. If uh, they did put Rupp on there, how funny it would be if they used that picture of him standing on the start line pointing to the stands. Much, well, much made fun of picture. Anyways. Uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, the person would have to be a let's run.com poster, um, which would be stupid. Actually. All right. Speaking of Rupp, can't believe it's taken us what hour and 12 minutes to talk about this. We need to fire up the, the fire, the, you know, the klaxon or the emergency breaking news sound effect, something like that. Robert Galen Rupp is racing this weekend. He's going to do the, Sprouts Mesa half marathon in Mesa, Arizona. Remember, he has not finished a race since October 2018, the Chicago marathon. He dropped out of Chicago last fall. I mean, I don't really know if there's anything else to say about it. He's going to run a race. He'll probably, I mean, I guess how he does is going to be important because if he runs something like 61 or something, he's actually, we need some like boots on the ground to tell us if he looks relaxed or anything like that. Or someone with like a live feed of this needs to sort of stream it and let us know how his running form looks. But I'm th- I'm going to say if he runs anything under about 62 minutes, I'll assume he's fine and, and back. But w- what do you expect or what do you want to see out of Rupp to show him he's ready, Robert? What am I expecting to see, John? What what would like what would be good? Yeah, what would con- like what would concern you, and what do you ex- what do you think you would see, and you'd be like, fine, he's well, fine it's at Mesa, it's like thirteen hundred feet elevation. That's not going to affect anything, right? So Miss is pretty low. Um, I, I want to be blown away by this. Uh, sixty, anything over sixty two would very much concern me. We need to look back now. I don't know if he was wearing vapor flies back in the day, but do you guys remember he hadn't even qualified for the trials. I don't think, or could you get him the ten thousand time in December? Of 2015, was that his half marathon debut, John? No, he had run New York City half before that, but that was sort of the that was his trial qualifier. Hopped in the foot traffic holiday half marathon in Portland. It was a local fucking half marathon. Excuse the language, children. If I, I, I know there's some young children. Don't use, don't cuss, don't cuss. But when you get riled up, sometimes it just comes out, and you have to apologize. He jumped in a local five half marathon. It was kind of cold. He ran 61.20. And it doesn't look like he's wearing vapor flies because their shoes were green. And the prototypes, though, were used at the trial. So it's possible. So I actually, I, I need to know. Someone look at these up. I have I, I, No one needs to know or care what Galen Rupp wore at the foot traffic holiday. I need to know what shoes he was wearing. So I'm just saying, if he was doing that back then, jo- and no, but the thing that shocked me was, and then Ken Go had a tweet, and this Liz Anjos has a tweet. I remember watching that and was like, oh my God, it looks like this guy is jogging a 61 minute low. 
So I think he can easily go under 61. This guy is such a talent. If anything under 61, put him on the team. But I would like to see him beat all those Houston times. I'd like him to see it looking effortless. So boots on the ground. Someone go out there, put it on Twitter. I, I'll give someone the Let's Run login. You can stream it live on the Twitter Periscope, whatever it's called. But, yeah, I want to see this. Now, if you didn't listen to the Ben Rosario podcast, it's up. You can go back. And one of the things I asked him on that podcast was, hey, Coach Rosario, you're good friends with Mike Smith and you coach. You guys both live in Flagstaff. You're both sort of 30, 40 years old. What do you think of Rupp going to Mike Smith? What do you think of that decision? Would you do that? And it was very interesting. He said, I didn't publicly want to comment on this until I talked to Mike myself. It sounds like they talked for about 90 minutes about this. And it was interesting. I really loved what Mike Ben said. Basically, Ben doesn't like – sounds like he's not – you don't have to agree on everything. He says, like, look, Mike is a great person. He thought a lot about this. This is a decision he's did. It's not necessarily something that Ben Cochazario would do. But, hey, you can agree to disagree. He still says Mike is a great person after the fact. But one of the things that was interesting to me on that was – I don't think this part actually made the podcast because it was after we kind of stopped recording. He said that Mike sort of talked to Rob and is like, look, trying to get my game to understand not everyone's out to get you. I really do think, and, and you've heard this from Mary Kane, like basically the NLP would hold themselves up in, in the hotels and it was us against them mentality. Everyone's out to get me. And it'd be interesting to see if Mike can get more of a human side of Galen Rupp to come out and say, Hey, if you let people, people will support you. I've heard some people say, Oh, I'm going to root for Rupp now. You know, before it was sort of like the evil empire. So who knows? Rob, I have a question. Do you dislike Ben Rosario and Mike Smith because they've had more coaching success and they're younger than you are? Do I dislike them? Well, you no. said this about Shanahan, that you wanted Shanahan to lose the Super Bowl. And Ben and Mike Smith are both younger than you are and have, you know, top Olympic trials contenders. And Mike's won three NCAA titles. I thought you might hold a grudge against them. No, no. Ben has done what... Uh, I would have wanted to done with money. I would say you want to coach the pros. It's way easier lifestyle than college coaching. And you want to get a shoe company sponsor. You coach the pros, live in Flagstaff. It's fantastic. I mean, he's living the dream. Um, and, he, and he's always been a big fan of Let's Run. So anyone's a big fan of Let's Run, I like. And Mike, hey, you know, yeah, I didn't win an NCAA title. I didn't come close. I'll admit that. But also, I didn't inherit an NCAA title team. So I, I think Mike is great. The way he is, um, I don't know, I, I feel like, the best coach, college coaches, I don't want to say they psychologically control these people, but they're, 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 they try to create a, a sort of a mystery about themselves. The way he talks kind of reminds me a little bit of Lanana. It's like there's this guru mentality to it. He is kind of a guru. Like some of the way, some of the things he says and the way he carries himself, it's a, uh, there's an air of mystery they, in there. They're doing it on, but they're doing it partially on effect for purpose. And I, 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 I didn't want to be like that, but it is successful. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they're doing it on purpose or not. The one thing I will say about Mike Smith is very interesting. He's from Massachusetts. He's from, from like Central Mass. He doesn't talk like anyone. His accent is just doesn't sound like it's from Central Mass at all. Like I, when I first met him, I was like, "Where the hell is this guy from?" And it, it's just I, that needs to be like an article or like a deep dive on Mike Smith's accent or like his manner of speaking because it's so. Different. Are you jealous of Mike Smith because your accent is unlike anyone from Boston or anyone from England because you've lived in both places? This is really about you. Don't turn this on me, John. <laughs> wow, yeah, you got me, Robert. It's a great sense of so personal insecurity. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, actually amazing though. When we lived in Flagstaff, we, we were excited when AU would be like make the podium. Mike Smith now, like if they don't win the nationals, it's a disappointment. That's how good he's been. So it, it's really amazing job. So no, I, no, it doesn't bother me. Running, 
because I feel like this may be arrogant. I feel like if you gave me the talent, I could coach anyone. And I feel like a good coach can coach. That is coach. arrogant. Yes. Yeah. So yes, give me and John Kellogg the same talent they have, baby. Get, get, you know, look at Alberto Salazar. What was he doing when he was coaching the Mike Donnelly's and the Chad Johnson's of the world? Nothing. And then he started getting Mo Farah, Safan Hassan. Oh my God, what a great coach! Part of being yeah. a college coach is recruiting, Robert. Yeah, that's all. Yes. That's basically and, and when you're recruiting, a bump, actually. Well, right. But when you've got the altitude and stuff, it's easier to recruit. When you're recruiting at the sixth most prestigious Ivy League school and recruiting kids that want to go to prestigious school, it's kind of hard to get the top kids. Wait, hold on. Sixth most prestigious. Which? What's your ranking of prestige of the Ivy League schools? Are you putting Dartmouth lower than Cornell? Putting the hype. Harvard, Yale, Princeton first. Okay, that's fair. Up, up top. And then um, I, I love Dartmouth. I would personally send my child to Dartmouth over any of their Ivies. Um, but Brown is clearly below Cornell. I put Penn below, but I don't know if everybody else would. They do have the business school there. The Columbia's in the city. Uh, oh, Columbia. Columbia. You think Columbia is at the bottom? No, I put it below Cornell. Okay, so you think- making. I, I love Cornell. Cornell's a great place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I, all I, great I, schools. I know. I I don't want to rank them either, but I just don't think but Dartmouth shouldn't be eighth. I'm just saying that. No, no uh, Brown is Brown would clearly be anyone's eighth. I think a lot of people would put Cornell eighth, Robert. No way. What do you mean, no way? Cornell is like world famous in the sciences. What is Brown famous for? Brown is famous for, for not even giving out grades. It's Emma Watson. She was famous before she went to Brown. All right, that's true. That's true. Um, all right. Before we piss off all our Ivy League listeners, let's move on. We got a great meet at Milrose this weekend, Robert. I'm going to be there. Boots on the ground. It's going to be fantastic. I think we should run through some of the elite races real quick uh, before we get to your shoe rant. So, Let's start at the top. I'll just read off some of the... I th- All right, let's start with this one. Men's 800 meters. This, I think, could be the race of the day. Mark English of Ireland. I'm not going to le- read off everyone in the field, but we got... Here's the big showdown. Bryce Hopple, Donovan Brazier, Isaiah Harris, and you've also got Brandon Kidder, who made the semis at Worlds last year, and Eric Sawinski. This is going to be great, because Harris, Hopple, and Brazier... Those are three of the four guys, I think, with a real chance to make the Olympic team this summer. Clayton Murphy's not in there. He's racing at Camel City this weekend. I think you've got to thank Brazier. It's amazing. Brazier, has, he's run Milrose. This is his fourth Milrose. He's never won there. But you've got to think this is the year he's going to win. And this could be, I mean, how close can he get to the world record? He looked incredibly easy running 114 last week in Boston for 600. World record's 142.67. I don't think that's going to fall, but... I think we could see him in the 143s maybe. He's he's ahead of where he was last year. And remember, he barely did any training until sort of January 1st last year because he was still recovering from injury. This year, he has not had that issue. Doesn't look like Michael Saruni's entered. Initially, we, he was supposed to be right. coming to run right. this That's meet. A, I would get interrupt. Where's Saruni? Yeah, he's not on the start list. So I'm assuming he's scratched. Are all Africans banned from this race officially from the meet? Just no. He, look, remember Saruni was. I think they announced him, but he's no longer entered. He he ran. He beat Brazier last year to run one forty three. I'm not as good as Donovan Brazier is. I'm not convinced that that um, that uh, Michael Saruni or what's Emmanuel Career. They might be bigger talents. So if you gave them the same resources and kept them ha- healthy, it would be interesting to see those guys. So I, I was really looking forward to that. Disappointing, he's not there. Brazier's going to win this thing. It'd be interesting to me to see who wins between to, between Hopple and Harris because that could be a battle for third at the Olympic trials. 
Well, I think, I mean, Hopple, let's put some respect on Hopple's name right here. He was fourth at the World Championships last year, Robert. And Hopple, he looked really good last week, beating two weeks ago, being Jake Whiteman at New Balance Indoors. Isaiah Harris did win the 800 at the Armory, but he only ran 148. It wasn't quite as impressive. I would say Hopple, convincingly, should be the pick for second. I'm kind of interested to see how close he gets to Brazier. But yeah, that's going to be, there's a lot of talent in that race. That'll be interesting. All right, women's 3K, you have Wayne Kaladi, the NCAA cross-country champion, Alicia Monson, you know, who won at this meet last year, ran really impressively. Uh, Ali Ostrander's in there. You know, Taylor Werner's in there. For, she's not running attached for Arkansas, but mostly collegiates in there. That one should be decent. You got a good, great shot put showdown. Joe Kovacs and Ryan Krauser. I mean, remember how, remember how good they were last year at the World Championships, how great that race was. So that's going to be fun. Men's 3,000. Paul Tanui, the Olympic silver medalist in the 10,000. He's in there. Hassan Mead, Edwin Cargott, the NCAA cross champion. Justin Knight, Hillary Bohr, Isaac Yorks, Jordan Guzman, Joe Klecker, the NCAA cross country runner-up. And then Nico Young of Newbury Park High School in California, the NXN champion. He is going for not only the high school indoor record, but the U.S. under-20 indoor record, 756 by Chris Derrick. Any shot, he gets that, Robert. Easily, 756. I don't even think of that as that impressive of a time. I can't believe that's a high school record. Nico will get the record. I'm pleased to just say I've been making jokes about no Africans allowed. Paul Tanui, glad to see he's running it. It's good. All right, I'm not going to say easily because that's a really tough record, but I think you know the pace up front will be fast enough. The question is, is it too fast? If they're running in like mid-740s and they have to solo like a 755, that could be tough, but... If the winning time's like 747 or 748 and Nico can sort of hang on the, the back of the lead pack, I think that's interesting. Do you think this is – are you a fan of him racing a, a really fast race like this, you know, two months after after NXN? Some people were complaining like he ran NXN, now he's coming back and running Milrose two months later and should he have a longer break? I mean, do I think it's smart from a long-term standpoint strategically? No, but if he's excited about it, I mean – Maybe he's not a pro star. Maybe he's not like, let him have, if he wants to have his moment in the sun, let him have it. I mean, they're motivated. It's hard to stop these athletes like two and him from doing it. But when it doesn't go well, it's easy to criticize. Um, you know, and w- one thing I was just thinking, John, I always criticize these pros for going pro early, you know, in college, like Isaiah Harris. I'm like, why can't he come back to the NCAAs? It's probably a good thing that he went pro early because imagine if he stayed in college last year, Bryce Hopper would have won everything. People would have lined up to pay Bryce, and why would they want to pay like the NCAA runner up? Strike when the iron's hot, man. He won NCAAs, and then he, he knew his value was the highest then, and he, he went pro. I don't, I don't blame him at all. There's not a lot of money on offer in track and field. If you're someone like Drew Hunter and you get a big pro offer coming out of high school, take it. Anyway, uh, we talked about the women's mile, women's 800. That's another. This is another event where I was really excited because Laura Mule was initially entered, and now she's not on the start list. So that's kind of annoying. Uh, Shalina Austin Clark is in there from great Britain, Sierra Brown, Natoya Gould, RJ Wilson still got some good names in there. I would really like to see Muir in there though. Cause she ran one fifty eight last week. Well, you got like two or three of the fastest women in the world and AJ and is Raven in there. No, oh. but John, let's go back to the women's mile. Who wins it? Give me your pick. <sighs> I really wish I, I wish I knew what kind of shape Gabriella Debus Stafford was in. I don't think she's raced yet this year. No, she was in that 800. Oh, she was. She ran two flat 96. 
Oh man. Uh, so she kind of got smoked by Gemma Riki, but she's better at 1500 than Riki. Oh, and then there's Coco in there as well. Uh, oh, I'm going to say Debut Stafford. Debut Stafford was the best in the 1500 last year of all these women. It wasn't even particularly close. So I, she's run 356. I'm going to say her, but who, who, who knows? It's fascinating, right? Riki, I mean, is Riki going to be the new thing? Is she like a 356 girl? I mean, I'm going to go with Riki, but I'm really excited about that race now. Yeah, no, that one's going to be good. Um, and then we'll end it with the Wanamaker Mile on the men's side. G- great field as usual. Ollie Hoare, NCAA champion in the 1500 in 2018. Eric Jenkins, he's a former Wanamaker champ. Ben Blankenship, Olympic finalist. Robert Domanek, Robbie Andrews, Sam Prakel, Jordy Beamish, the NCAA champ from Northern Arizona. Nick Willis, Chris O'Hare, they had a good battle at New Balance Indoors two weeks ago. But the, f- the clear favorite in my mind Philip Ingebrigtsen of Norway. He was the World Championship bronze medalist in 2017. He just ran 3:36 in Dusseldorf for 1500 on Tuesday. I think you're going to have to bring something special to beat that guy. He is clearly to me the man to beat in the Wanamaker Mile. Yeah, and you, what you didn't mention was he won that race in Dusseldorf. So, you know, be interesting. Uh, you know, uh, Nick Willis, as much as he's done two Olympic medals, he's never won the Wanamaker Mile. He'd love to do it. But Ingebrigtsen for the win there. Okay, John, am I finally allowed to talk about the Vaporflies? Robert, you have my permission. Say, I don't understand how you have anything left to say on this topic that we've talked about ad nauseum every week for the past six months. Some people may not have listened to the emergency podcast. They may be once a weekers. If you haven't listened to the emergency podcast, stop listening to this one and go listen to that and then come back if you still want to hear about the shoes. But for everyone who did listen to it, Robert has some new stuff to say. So, first of all, on last week's podcast, I promised the masses that I would finally write the article officially stating in print that what happened in 2016 was wrong. It was mechanical doping and the results need to be validated. I was a man of my word, and I did write that piece. This week, I'm going to be promised to reach out to the double. So, I, and since then, the World Athletics has come out with a ruling, and I'm, I was pleased with the ruling in the sense of it's basically an acknowledgement of, hey, what happened in 2016 was wrong. We don't want it to happen in 2020. Although they haven't specifically stated that, so what I will do this week is I will reach out to them and see if I can get to them to acknowledge that that's the point of this rule. Because, John, the point of this, it talks about an unfair advantage, you know, and there's been some fascinating articles. There's a great article written by an outside magazine by the Sweat Silence columns by Alex Hutchinson, and he has a fake conversation between Nike and the IAAF, and, like, it would have been hard to ban these shoes because, you know, imagine if Nike had gone to the IAAF when these shoes came out and said, hey, you should ban these shoes. And they're like, why? Well, they have a fiber plate. You mean like Paul Turgot's fiber plate? Well, they have a special foam. Like, oh, you mean like Halagabosa's special foam? You know, the Adidas shoes were better than else's. So even when I was talking to my wife about this, she, I was explaining it to her. She's like, well, what do you mean? Everybody wants to have a better shoe. So yes, people have been trying to have better shoes for a long time, but the problem is no one actually successfully pulled it off. What do you mean? You don't think those shoes were an improvement? The previous iterations? They were, but it wasn't so obvious. To me... You know what? What I said is this is like pornography. You know it when you see it. This was an unfair assistance. This was an unfair advantage. And what happened in 2016 was wrong. This kind of this is a weird analogy. My other analogy is like if we're not going to enforce these rules, why have them? 
The problem is I've now changed my mind. I, I think DQing the runners, well, I was going to say this may have been wrong because if you told Kipchoge, hey, you can't wear these shoes, he puts on a normal pair of flats and he wins. And I said they may not have known how good they were. That's what I was saying on the emergency podcast. I'm not so sure I no longer believe that. I'm not sure what the right answer is, though, John. I have read a Nike article from 2017, and this is almost like them confessing to a crime. John, have you seen this? I have my hyperbole, my hyperbole monitor in my in my hands is currently beeping all the way to the left, and the, it's threatening to blow up right now. Robert, please explain what you mean here. It says to May third, two thousand seventeen, on the Nike website that the shoes athletes say will change the future of running. And in this article, it's talking about how the Vaporfly four percent are coming out, and it's just Shailene Flanagan, Amy Craig, raving about the shoes. Amy Craig was so – Shailene Flanagan is so high in the shoes, she said it was a nightmare that she'd wake up in Rio without the shoes. Amy Craig says the shoes were so special that when she was out running and had to go to the bathroom, you know, sometimes you hide in the woods to go to the bathroom so you have some privacy. She would take the shoes off because she didn't want to get them muddy. She was afraid she was going to ruin them. So these athletes knew that these shoes were way above and beyond. That sounds like a confession of murder to me. Book them. Really? Where's the smoking gun there, Robert? What's wrong with that? How is that confessing to a crime? Well, they knew that these shoes were an unfair decision. No, they didn't. They liked how the shoes felt. They thought they were great shoes. How is that any different from any other athlete in history given a new pair of shoes that they really like? They don't know it's going to benefit them that much. Look, and I said, I said, I said in the column last week, if I was an athlete, I would run them. Of course, if Nike gets, everyone's trying to get better shoes. You're always trying to get faster shoes. If they give you that shoe. Hey, this is my ploy, ployer. Of course, you're going to wear them, but it was just so much better. Like I don't know. I, I and then I was quoted in the New York Post this week after this ruling came out, and she quoted me as using the word shady. I just think it's shady, like the fact that two things: one, they made this shoe look exactly like the Zoom Streak when they used it in Rio. They made it look like another shoe. Two, when they come out with this press release, right, hyping up the shoe. They, they talk about Flanagan and Craig who didn't do anything in Rio. They don't mention the fact that it was worn by the three medalists. Are they trying to hide that fact? All right, Robert, my question to you is, let's say Nike announced before the Olympics in 2016 that they had this new shoe technology and made it available to all of their athletes. Does anything, what changes? Do the athletes from the other shoe companies suddenly start wearing Vaporflies in the Olympic marathon? I'm not sure that, that that does anything. I guess you, you, one of your big points is they're very secretive about this release, but if they want secretive about it, what do you think changes at the Olympic marathon or the Olympic trials marathon? Well, that that's a very good you know point, John. I mean, in the sense of like, first of all, I don't think people would have believed it. I mean, I think even Shalala kept it. That's part of that other podcast. Like they were investigating the lab and they couldn't believe it. It was like the magic shoes. It was just amazing. These shoes were so much better. Like everyone's been trying. Oh yes. Everyone, Adidas, there's a great article in the Irish Times, and I'll link to these in the show notes, about how you know John Tracy in the 84 Olympic had a special pair of shoes. I mean, people have been trying to do this for years, so maybe people wouldn't have worn them, but it doesn't make it right. Like The point of the Olympics is not to see who has the best pair of shoes on. So like it says unfair assistance and advantage, and yes, that rule is, is was written so poorly. It was just you know written there. As Jeff Burns told me on a, when I talked to him last week, 
he said that rule is written to, is a loophole so that you know you could you could violate it. But it's like, why are we going to have these? It reminds me of like border control in some ways, John. Like, why have a border if you're not going to enforce it? Why have a rule about unfair assistance or advantage if you're not going to enforce it? So they probably wouldn't have worn it. Some of these shoe companies wouldn't let them out. But one interesting thing is, John, in the podcast last week, in the emergency podcast, Shayla Kip says, even right now, she says these shoe companies need to be testing their own shoes in a lab. And if they're not good enough, she thinks that you need to let the, your athletes wear the vapor flies in the trials this year and in the Olympics. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, John, looking back, I just want an acknowledgement from the IAAF, an official acknowledgement of, hey, we don't just maybe the, maybe Nike didn't really do anything wrong except for making them look like somebody else's shoes. If they just said, hey, it's a new shoe, it's super good. That would have been better for me. So we know potentially that it was the shoes. Um, that would have been fine because – uh, if I was Flanagan or Craig, I probably would have done the same thing they did. So just be open about it. Acknowledge, hey, we don't want this moving going forward. I think these rules are. And, you know, I, I love Brett Lerner. He also had a piece about this. And I think maybe this is the best way to conclude, John. And, and Kip said this. In a few years, everything will be fine. But maybe they're still not fine for the next six months or so. Here's how Brett Lerner ended his piece. A few more, a few more years like this, and once this painful transition period has passed, things will probably readjust and it will all seem normal. If it, the power's... If it powers the self-belief of the next generation to go beyond current ideas and limitations, great. There's a lot of great great racing ahead, but it's hard not to feel like something's been lost. Is it all real? Fantastic way to conclude this, I think, John.